humanitarian aid is a lot about getting things to people. And yes, the rights are kind of something that you need to keep in mind, but it's assumed that you're going to be looking into it. But unless you do it in a very intentional way, they, they are overlooked. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. Humanitarian. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. And with me in the studio today, I have Alex. Hi, Alex. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Lars Peter. My name is Alexandre Corriveau-Bourg, uh, and I'm one of the co-founders of Veren Solutions, which is a company that is trying to transform the way that humanitarians support refugees who live in rental housing. But more importantly for this conversation, I'm just a passionate nerd on the subject of housing, land, and property. Right. So housing, land and property, HLP, is going to be the theme of this double episode. It's such a complex and rich theme that we actually had to chop all our interviews into to two episodes. When you first came to me with this idea of doing uh, an episode on HLP, I have to admit I wasn't too familiar with the topic and all the ins and outs. And the way you explained it to me is that it's it's just like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. It's an invisible problem because it's an SEP field, someone else's problem. Just explain to me, why did you use that, that metaphor? Well, for anybody who, who's a deep diver into sort of the, the universe of uh, Douglas Adams, the SEP field is essentially an invisibility cloak for the ship that they have, which convinces people's brains that they don't see it because it is somebody else's problem. And then, unfortunately, that is ultimately what housing, land, and property rights is. Is It's something that surrounds us everywhere. It is right in front of our eyes. But organizations, governments, and even people on a day-to-day -day basis often see it as somebody else's problem. But unfortunately, displacement is fundamentally a housing, land, and property problem. So it's everybody's problem. Everyone knows that the people's survival depends on having access to a safe, stable, healthy place to live, um, clean water for domestic consumption, and just place to sort of establish yourself and create a community. So everybody needs it, but no one looks at it directly. And it was very interesting when I, I looked into the SEP field, a bit, I googled a bit around and I found out that actually it wasn't Douglas Adams who came up with it. It started in the mid-70s when there was a, a journal that published an article on low-income housing and sort of bureaucratic inaction around that. So actually, the SEP field that we, we know and love from the Hitchhiker's Guide originated in thinking around low-income housing and why problems around that are not being tackled. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. No, it's... And I have to admit also that that I probably also was a bit fooled by the SEP field of HLP, terrible acronym, but I wasn't acutely aware of just how deeply this penetrates almost every aspect uh, of, of what we do when we're dealing with, with people who have been displaced or, or, or somehow have 
have lost their home. HLP issues at their core are messy and they're complex. And I think that's why humanitarian agencies often treat it as someone else's problem. They're already in messy, complicated situations and they don't necessarily want to add an extra layer of complexity, especially one that's so deeply rooted in the conflict itself. They want to be able to just deliver the assistance. They want to build houses really quickly. And unfortunately, like almost any other protection issues, if humanitarians fail to, protection, uh, to pay attention to it, they can actually do serious harm to the communities that they're there to help. But of course, on this show, we just love, we thrive on complexity and messiness. And so let's dive into it. We have, uh, we have two episodes. And the way we have, uh, we've decided to structure this is we will begin with a global overview, speak with a couple of colleagues who, who are operating at the global level, the policy level with this. And then we will dive into three different contexts. And I would like to ask you to just introduce those three contexts and say, why did we choose to focus on those three? Sure. So our journey today, or over the next two episodes, will take us from Somalia to Puerto Rico to Ukraine. And the reason that we invited these speakers is that they're doing work and they're imagining solutions that I find are truly inspiring. They're the people who looked straight into the SCP field and were able to see that HLP is their problem. Great. But first, let's do the, the global uh, level. And we have two guests joining us in the studio for that. Please introduce them for us. Today, we are speaking with Iru Seralasa, the Senior Director for Disaster Risk Reduction and Response from Habitat for Humanity International, and with Ibere Lopez, the Housing, Land, and Property Advisor for the Global Shelter Cluster with IOM. And they are two of the co-organizers for the Conference on Housing, Land, and Property Crises. It is a conference series that was inaugurated in June of uh, earlier this year of 2023, but will be happening again next year. Um, and so they're going to tell us a little bit why they became HLP nerds and why HLP is such an important issue at a global perspective and why they uh, started the conference series. Welcome. And the reason we invited the two of you is that uh, Alex claims that you're both big HLP nerds. And so, you know, tell us, why are you such an HLP nerd? <laughs> That's a cool way to define it. Um, in my case... I, I'm an architect and an urban planner, and I came to work in humanitarian work with the idea that it was about building houses and getting people into shelter. And what I realized on the first missions that I that I went into, which was in Haiti, is that the housing was just at the very end of the whole process. There were so many issues that you had to understand before you were even able to build. And, and in the situation in Haiti, for example, we needed to understand how people related to the land, the conflict that they have within the land, the fact that there was overlapping rights in the same uh, lot and that organizations were not able to actually move forward without really having an understanding of those. And recovery was completely stopped. Uh, it was not about money. It was not about having bricks or having uh, the materials. It was actually about understanding all of the land tenure situation and how you could bend the rules, if you will, to being able to actually build something that could stay with the people that were supposed to be uh, benefiting from it. So when I I actually realized about that, it became something that I I really wanted to understand better. I started to following up, doing some 
courses outside of my of my job and realizing that once you start putting that into the programming that you do, a lot of things start to make sense because you can have a lot of cascading effects that people actually get empowered to make investments that before they were kind of not really willing to because the land that they were occupying could be taken away from them or they could be evicted. And Ibeda, what what's your story? How come you're so passionate about this? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I I think I can track back my interest in HOP to to my first job with the UN in, in East Timor. Uh, in 2006, I was working as a legal advisor uh, with UNDP at, for the Timorese government, and um, and I was called to be part of um, of an emergency response group in 2006 after after a civil conflict in East Timor where lots of houses were burned and lots of displacement. Uh, it was a civil conflict, it was an inter, inter-ethnic conflict, so they couldn't rely on the traditional um, the traditional leaders to say who lives where because they were so biased. Uh, and so, you know, who, who, who are your sources of information now, now that you can't rely on the traditional leaders and the local leaders? Um, so that was a that was a big challenge, and and then from there I just started working in that field. So we had this conference earlier this year. What were the main themes that you explored? I think the conference had a, two main purposes. One of it was to to connect land issues happening in the domestic U.S. Uh, arena, which often gets very underlooked and is assumed that developed countries don't have these issues with also the work that we are doing internationally, mostly in humanitarian sector, and and also to connect development practices with humanitarian practices. So while we were looking at um, HLP issues in crisis context, a lot of times HLP can be the trigger for actually having a crisis itself because they can, they can generate conflict. So for me, what was really interesting was the fact that we were able to actually bring the U.S. practitioners and international practitioners and really connect both pieces and, and realize that this this is an issue that goes beyond a vulnerable countries where systems are not in place. It, it actually happens in every single country, like develop or not, because land issues are, depend on history and they have been changed over time. And if you don't understand all of those changes, you risk actually to do harm while you're doing any type of programming because of not lack of understanding on what's beyond and all of the tensions that might be creating. I had two so goals with this conference. The first one was really build that bridge between uh, HOP in emergency response and in development. And and the reason for that is that um, the HOP or land tenure and property rights work uh, in the development space has so much more expertise and develop so much more, um, develop a whole body of knowledge that we lack in the HOP in emergency response. And we need to drink from that that fountain. Um, so I, I think that, that that's one, one of the things that we managed to, to achieve with the conference is to start this connection, even within uh, the donor community. Uh, we, had, we had USAID talking to BHA, uh, on the issue and discussing how they could collaborate. So I think that was fantastic. And the second objective that I had was to um, expose students and, and people that are beginning their professional lives to the HOP sector because I think that's one of the big 
bottlenecks for our sector is the lack of um, people coming into the profession and seeing it as a potential professional pathway. It's so interesting to hear the two of you describe this conference. First, I hear you talking about uh, reaching across uh, the famous nexus and trying to to really collaborate with other communities of practice, also focus on high-income countries and how HLP is a problem there. And, and very strategically, I also hear you talking about growing a new generation of professionals who are specialized in HLP. I think that's extremely smart. So I guess the million-dollar question is, if it is so important, why don't we have an HLP cluster? Why is it sort of chucked away in a corner of the protection cluster? Look, I agree with you. I think that uh, it's a failure of the humanitarian architecture to not have an HOP cluster. Uh, the HOP cluster, the the cluster area of the HOP area of responsibility under the protection clusters, to me, sits awkwardly in there um, because, well, first of all, the main operational issues that come up in uh, on land property. Are, come from the shelter cluster, shelter operations, uh, and then all the other, most of the other clusters also deal with with land issues. Protection has such a huge portfolio that HOP gets very little attention in there, um, and also the fact that we don't have a cluster um, doesn't expose us to the rest of the humanitarian practitioners as a as a legitimate humanitarian area of practice as well. The second part of your question on why is actually important and is not there is a very invisible thing until you start dealing with the issues because it's intangible. It's about rights. And when you start about talking about rights, it all becomes a bit convoluted. Humanitarian aid is a lot about getting things to people. And yes, the rights are kind of something that you need to keep in mind, but it's assumed that you're going to be looking into it. But unless you do it in a very intentional way, they, they are overlooked. As you were talking, I was thinking, what does success really look like? So maybe I'd like to ask you, if we gave you a magic wand, each of you, and you had one wish, and you could change the humanitarian work in whatever way you wanted, what would that wish be? If I had a magic wand, HLP issues would be mapped so that people could qualify for aid regardless of actually their tenure status. My wish is that um, all humanitarian actors would would consider um, security of tenure as as the cornerstone of of um, self-reliance. So Iru, Ibere, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you at the future HLP and crises conferences in the coming years. We have our fingers crossed that your wishes come through. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to you for having us. Now we go to Somalia, where we are speaking to Shazan Kirubi, a housing, land, and property specialist with IOM. And Alex, you were the one who thought that Somalia would be a good case to look at. Why, why is that? Somalia is, as most of your, our audience knows, one of these protracted conflicts that has waves and waves of displacement that has now captured our imagination for about 30 years. And HLP is at the heart of a lot of these issues. And for the first several decades, it was treated as somebody else's problem, but Shazan, the IOM, and the coalition that she's working for have changed that story, and they've suddenly made it everybody's problem. And so we're looking forward to learning more about how they've done that. Fantastic. 
Shizan, welcome to True Humanitarian. Great to be here. Shizan, we've been kicking off these conversations with why are you such an HLP nerd? So let's start there. <laughs> oh, that's that's a difficult question. Um, maybe to start off, um, I, I am Kenyan, so I'm I'm from Kenya. And growing up um, as a Kenyan woman um, and seeing how housing insecurity is a daily reality for countless of families, um, including women and children, I've just seen the toil that it takes on lives um, from the uncertainty of not being able to call um, a place their home. Um, or their struggles of asserting property rights, um, especially for women who, in most cases, particularly in Africa, um, face um, incredible amounts of discrimination. So for me, um, housing, land, and property um, embodies this vision um, or this mentality of empowerment and justice. Um, it signifies, for me, addressing housing, land, and property challenges also signifies the pursuit um, of a society where, as an African woman, um, I can confidently be able to secure my housing and property rights or where I can provide a safe and nurturing environment for my family. So it's about giving me the tools or other women the tools to break free from the cycles of poverty and vulnerability. So for me, that's why it's really, really important um, and why I'm so interested in this topic. So land must be an incredibly complex issue to work with in a country like Somalia. What what are some of the obstacles you face? Um, so so maybe just to give you a bit of background, um, Somalia has one of the highest displacement statistics globally. Um, we're currently now at 3.8 million um, internally displaced people. Um, and what's interesting about Somalia is a lot of people are moving from rural areas into urban areas. And this is because of um, various reasons. Um, we're seeing because of climate change in which Somalia is one of the most vulnerable countries to the effects of climate change, um, irreversible land degradation um, and high insecurity in areas of origin. Um, displacement in Somalia is more of a protracted and permanent nature. And when people come into urban areas, they mainly settled on uh, privately owned land. So a lot of the urban um, and displaced population in Somalia is housed on informal settlements, um, of which I, I guess uh, 85 to 90 percent of the settlements are on privately owned land without any legal um, guarantees, without any documentation or without any rights. Um, and in instances, in rare instances where these land tenure agreements exist, they often take a more informal um, or oral um, kind of nature. So they are gentleman agreements that can be easily violated or altered without any prior notice. So for a durable solution program that is being um, implemented in an urban center, we've come to see that forced evictions is one of the biggest shocks that is facing um, a displaced family in an urban area. And it's become such a widespread issue that um, can be can, it's reaching a magnitude that can be likened to an epidemic, for example. So since 2018, we've seen over 1.3 million people having been forcefully evicted um, because of lack of because of widespread tenure insecurity. So that's one of the key issues that we see in urban centers. And can I ask you, and you 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 mentioned several times we did this, we did that. 
Who, who are we when you speak? Um, so as I, I, I didn't introduce um, the program that I work for, but I work for the Danwadag Durable Solutions Consortium. And the Danwadag Durable Solutions Consortium is a combination of like-minded international and local organizations that are working together to provide long-term stability and improved living conditions for displaced population. So the consortium is led by the International Organization for Migration, IOM, and is implemented by by international NGOs like the Norwegian Refugee Council, um, Concern Worldwide, and other local organizations such as Gredo and Juba Foundation. So the unique setup of the consortium has enabled us to see um, insurmountable success of our project, um, while the leadership of the UN agency has also enabled stronger partnerships with government stakeholders and access to donor funding and resources. So we as Danwadag, as a durable solutions consortium, so we've we've adopted um, a multifaceted approach that involves working with a wide range of stakeholders. Um, so we've been working with government, we've been working with private landholders, and we've been working with communities, uh, mainly to to establish more formal land tenure agreements. So with Danwadag, we've mainly been empowering local authorities to negotiate for this um, formal land tenure agreement. So one such example is um, if we have an investment that we want to put into a displacement site, we would usually leverage on this to be able to formalize this land tenure agreement agreements because in exchange for these investments or these infrastructures, that would ultimately increase the value of land. So we've seen cases where private landowners would be willing to sign an agreement ranging between five to seven years and not evict these populations in exchange for these infrastructure investments at the end of the agreement. In other cases, um, and this is one of our flagship projects, we've seen local authorities also allocate land. So one such example is in Baidoa, um, and Baidoa is interesting because it's a town that has received huge influxes of displaced individuals. So a town that was originally meant to host 70,000 people now hosts almost 600,000 people. And at the time, um, in 2018, when the government was negotiating or we were negotiating for the land, um, Baidoa also faced the third highest rate of forced evictions. So as I, as I earlier said, majority of, of um, people moving into urban areas mainly settled on this privately um, owned land with no secure tenure arrangements in place. So the Barwaka example is really a successful example of how we've been able to mitigate forced evictions because we were able to negotiate negotiate with government to allocate land. Um, and in exchange, we've been able to provide um, infrastructure, access to basic services, but also for these families, they've been able to access land titles. Um, so the project has been transformational for them because they were facing the highest risk of forced evictions and living in makeshift shelters in overcrowded informal settlements. And now they're able to live their lives um, on their own plot of land with, uh, with their own titles deeds. So this example, of course, is not the, the, the normal norm in Somalia. It's incredibly rare to have um, situations where government is able to allocate that land for relocation of displaced populations. So we're trying to see how we can look into other solutions like rental interventions or incremental housing solutions. That sounds like an incredibly powerful combination of actors um, from the global level to the local level. Now, the main question that comes to my mind at this point is how do we scale these solutions that you've been working on um, to 
be able to support the number, the millions of people in Somalia who actually do need this type of support? Um, that's that's a very difficult question because so far since Danwadag was um, since Danwadag was conceptualized in 2018, we've had various projects that we are amounting success to. So, like with the Barwako example, we've been able to relocate 13,000 um, individuals. So that's about 2,009 families. However, in certain areas like Mogadishu and in Kismayu, where land has been a central issue. Um, we've been able to provide a more integrated layered package of services. So, for example, preventing people from forced evictions or providing um, access to basic services such as housing and water. So it's it's a difficult question to tell you in totality, um, but we've had certain examples whereby we've been able to reach um, a significant number of people. Um, but maybe just to mention here that scale has been the issue, as you point out. And that's why we're trying to look at, um, we, we, we're now adopting a new kind of um, innovative um, and testing approach. So with funding from USAID, we're currently looking at how we can bridge the current knowledge gaps that we faced in phase one of our program and explore more bold and innovative ideas um, within phase two of our program. So we're taking on projects that other durable solution partners may hesitate um, or may be unable to take. So as I said with the Barwako example, because it's not scalable for the 3.8 estimated um, IDPs in Somalia, uh, why don't we look at scaling on rental interventions? So that's just one example of what we're doing. Now, when you tell us about the story of the Danwadag coalition of, uh, that came together, you said that they were founded in 2018. Now, 2018 is still several decades into uh, the crisis or the crises in Somalia. What happened in 2018 that made that coalition come together? What made it possible? Um, so in 2018, we were just coming off um, a really bad drought. Um, so as, as I previously even mentioned with the Barwako model, when we're negotiating for land at the time, uh, Baidoa was receiving influxes um, of, of displaced individuals due to drought. Um, so that was that was the whole conceptualization of Danwadag, and Danwadag also was was being conceptualized from other durable solution programs that had just ended. So we had durable solution programs from 2016 to 2020, um, and when Danwadag was coming into play in 2018, um, donors were really focused on how can we provide more long term solutions um, to really delve into Somalia's issue on displacement. So moving away from this humanitarian kind of thinking and um, going along the lines of how do we adopt more sustainable ways um, of on our programming. So it was mainly the drought um, that we saw that we were seeing these huge influxes of, of IDPs into urban areas. Um, and that was the whole conceptualization of Danwadag. Now, Somalia is far from the only country in the world where we see a protracted crisis with millions of people displaced for extended periods of time. What, how do you think it would be different if we, in these crises, also introduced an approach with durable solutions similar to the one you're working on in Somalia? 
Um, well, for me, what, what makes Danwadag really interesting, um, and, and just coming back to the focus on housing, land, and property, is this initial emphasis on housing, land, and property. Um, because as, as we know in Somalia, as we know as the actors in Somalia, finding a means to improve land tenure security for IDPs is one of the most important steps um, to finding durable solutions, but also to address the negative repercussions of rapid urbanization. So all our efforts have been geared towards um, helping displaced people and communities secure their rights to land, which is crucial to avoid forced evictions, but also to promote um, long-term stability. The other thing that makes Danwadag also quite interesting, it's the unique setup of the consortium. Um, as I previously said, we are a combination of both local and international organizations. And this has facilitated greater access um, in working like in working in a country like Somalia, which is quite dynamic, um, greater adaptability. We've been able to adapt as issues emerge um, because in Somalia, um, a drought can start today, then a flood, you can have a flood two days later. So you need to um, develop that consistent um, modality or operators modi of adapting. Um, and then also having local organizations at the forefront or having them as part of our consortium has also given us a wider contextual understanding of the issues um, and being able to even access communities to the extent that we've been able to access these communities to be able to understand them, um, but also to work alongside government uh -huh, has been really crucial um, to the success of Danwadag. Then the last thing I would say is um, Danwadag has also taken this bottom-up approach. Um, so whatever we do, we ensure that our com the communities that we serve are defining our priority areas. We will never go into an area without first understanding what the communities need, understanding their vulnerabilities, and understanding their needs. So having this bottom-up approach is something that is really crucial to implementing any project in Somalia, whether it's a housing, land, and property project, or whether it's a durable solution project, or a humanitarian project. You need to um, take that bottom-up approach at the very onset. Shishan, it's a fascinating story you tell, and I in particular like the way you describe building the coalition of actors, working with a very contextually adapted approach, not the cookie cutter that we normally run around the world with. It's, it's fantastic. I guess my main concern or, or, or reservation or thing that puzzles me is is it possible to, to scale this approach? Because the needs you are describing in Somalia are overwhelming when you look at the numbers. And, and the way you work is fantastic, but I think very difficult to, to scale up so, so what? How do you do that? How do you scale? Um. So, so the biggest, the biggest obstacle when we were starting out, of course, was resources. Um. However, we've seen an increased amount of focus on Somalia with now development actors coming in. So for Danwadag, we realize, um, we we always go back to what what is our mission and what is our goal. Durable solutions, um, our aim is to address displacement-related vulnerabilities and needs for populations. After that is done, it might become a development challenge. So that is why it is really important to work with a different variety of actors 
from the onset because addressing displacement challenges, particularly in Somalia, is not a humanitarian problem. It has to be seen as a political problem, but with humanitarian development elements tied to it. So we really need to work with all variety of stakeholders, but the government also needs to be at the forefront. The Barwako model where we see the where we saw the government allocation of land, that was not going to be possible if there was no political will. So you have to realize that you have to work hand in hand with the government. Um, we also had shared investments um, from, from different stakeholders, not just Danwadag, um, but other humanitarian stakeholders, other development stakeholders like the World Bank, peace building actors also came in. So it's about how do we coordinate and collaborate and how do we layer what we're already providing. So we can say that Danwadag can only provide up to this amount. How else can we bring in other actors to take on the work that we're doing? So it's about layering and sequencing and being a bit more strategic with our investments. Um, and that was, the that was the challenge at the very beginning. There was no intentional coordination, but more and more as we've evolved over time since 2018, I've seen a huge difference um, in, the, in, in how we're coordinating amongst each other. A lot more needs to be done, but it's just one way to overcome the challenge of skill. Thank you so much, Shazan, for joining us. This was a really exciting and fascinating conversation as always. And um, as we look into the next episode, we'll be looking at how some of these solutions are scalable and those models that are being applied in places like Puerto Rico and in Ukraine. Thanks, Alex. What, what a story, Alex. That's uh, such a powerful, powerful story Shazan is telling. Uh, what's on your mind? I think for me, the donors and the organizations realized that it was less expensive in preventing these problems and then responding to them once they had actually taken place. And that after maybe too long of treating it as somebody else's problem, they all came together and decided to make it everybody's problem. And they started to do something about it. And I think that's really, really inspiring. Yeah, it is such an inspiring success story. I guess, I guess the main thing on my mind as I ask this and also is, is, uh, is this scalable, right? Because what they do, there's no doubt that, that it, it really works, but it's still at a fairly small scale. And we're talking about millions and millions of people. That's no, in no way an argument against it, but, but it would be good if we could find a way of, of really dealing with it at scale. I 100% agree, and I think that sets us up really well for our next episode, where we're going to travel to Puerto Rico and to Ukraine, where there are people who are starting to imagine those scalable solutions. Fantastic. So let's let's cut it here. Alex, thank you so much. It's great. It was a great uh, conversation. And uh, to the listeners, don't give up. Don't leave us. There's another equally fantastic episode coming your way. Choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders That get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places With slums and jets Ask better questions Pick apart, educate And no one is safe We're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind Beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned Humanitarian. <laughs>